Welcome to another episode of Behind the Catch Fence. I'm your host, David Hoffman. We're on for another interview episode, guys, but before I reveal this special guest, I'd like to give a quick shout out to No Copyright Music on YouTube. They're the ones creating the music that I'm playing. It's obviously No Copyright Music, so it's free. I'd like to thank you guys for that. With me being a broke college student, I'm grateful for you guys. Go subscribe to them, No Copyright Music. Welcome to another interview episode, and man, am I ever excited about our next guest. But before we introduce him, if you haven't seen our latest episodes with Alexander Rossi, make sure to go check them out. Now today, I'm honored to have one of the most versatile race car drivers in the world. Welcome, four-time X Games gold medalist Tanner Faust. Faust has done everything from winning four rallycross championships to adding two Formula Drift championships to his resume in back-to-back years. He's been a stunt driver for numerous movies, including the Bourne series, the Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift movie, Ford vs. Ferrari, Need for Speed, and Iron Man 2. Besides his numerous stunts and movies, he's also broken multiple records, including the longest ever car jump in the world when he did that at the 2011 Indianapolis 500. What he's most known for is his time as a host on the American version of Top Gear. Needless to say, Faust has done everything imaginable in the car world. Now enough with the chit chat, let's get right into it guys. We have a lot to cover. Tanner was kind enough to talk for a long period of time and I'll tell you one thing, it is one of the most informative interviews I've ever done. So you guys will really, really enjoy this one. So sit back, relax, grab your favorite snack, maybe some popcorn, cheese puff, whatever it may be, and enjoy this episode with Tanner Faust. Hey guys. Hey Tanner, how you doing, man? <laughs> Sorry about the technical difficulties there. Things no are, problem. Chargers, it's just crazy. <laughs> it's no problem at all, man. <laughs> how you um, doing? Uh, I saw you've been, I saw on Instagram, you've been uh, doing some aviation, going to that Sun and Fun event. How was that? Oh, it was awesome. You know, are you into aviation at all? I've honestly never even really, you know, I don't know too much about it, but always willing to learn. Well, you're missing out on a layer of life that is incredibly <laughs> accessible. Um, that was cool. I, it's kind of the SEMA of the aviation world is what sun and fun is. It's, I think it's based around the experimental side of airplanes. So with airplanes, there's um, certified and then there's experimental. And um, the certified ones, uh, you know, you have to go through the FAA for every approval of everything. Certified ones, people can build them on their own, modify them. In recent years, the certified stuff, I mean, that sounds sketchy, right? And even the name experimental. But in recent years, the experimental stuff has become more and more reliable as electronics are more dependable and um, data on failures and things like that is more reliable. So um, in any case, yeah, I, I may be doing a TV show revolving around aviation and cars. I have a pilot's license and a plane, a small plane, and love flying. And so it was a great, it's a maybe a good opportunity to kind of combine a new passion of mine into an old passion of mine into cars and planes, putting them together like chocolate and peanut butter. How can you go wrong, right? Can't go wrong. <laughs> right. How did that like initially like become a thing with aviation? Was it just more recently or has this kind of been like a passion that's kind of carried over for a lot of years? Um, I, you know, the, I've told the story of kind of how I got into racing cars a few times. And in that um, pathway, I, I started working for an inventor who invented amusement rides. And that is the guy that kind of got me in the entrepreneurial way of thinking, which I, I used to chase down whatever I thought was the most fun thing to do for a living, which was cars. He was a pilot, had went through several planes, loved airplanes, and 
Um, so I always thought that I would have a pilot's license, but then the racing business actually worked and I actually got busy doing it. And that, you know, it wasn't until Top Gear stopped shooting uh, probably five, six years ago that I got my pilot's license and, and got to chase it down and I've loved it. And you mentioned just with uh, racing kind of taking off like the business itself, where did your love for racing begin initially? Um, for racing, it probably was watching Colin McRae drive rally cars is where I really thought, wow, racing's pretty cool. But for me, I didn't have anybody in my family that was in racing. I wasn't familiar with sport, the various types of racing or the business of motorsport. I just liked driving. I knew that, you know, I lived in Scotland when I was a kid, when I was 10 years old, my mom would let me drive seven miles of our drive, 18 mile drive to school. She'd let me drive that because it was this private land, police weren't allowed on it and stuff. And so I was addicted to driving early on. By the time I got my driver's license, I, I, it, it was by far the most fun thing that I got to do. Never, you know, sometimes it takes knowing somebody in racing, like you're a parent or, or an uncle or something or an aunt that can introduce you to what, you know, that this is a possible job to actually think of it as a job. So I went to school to be a doctor and uh, my undergrad was a pre-med major um, uh, in biology at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And uh, it wasn't until I was basically checking the final boxes of getting my degree since I went that far, you know, and it was my junior, senior year. I was like, all right, I might as well finish this, but I'm pretty sure now I don't want to go to med school and be in the fluorescent tube lighting world for the next nine years. I want to get outside and do something outside. And, and so that's, um, yeah, so that, it, so it was from watching Colin McRae. And then when I got out of school, I worked as a mechanic in, in volunteering on a race team, SCCA race team on spec Fords in return for uh, enough seat time to get a license and do a race and then kind of just figured out how to make it work from there. What would you say was your big break during all of that? My big break was drifting coming from Japan to the U.S. Um, because, you know, I, I whittled at it and I did the ride and drive thing, which the ride and drive world is like marketing events where they set up autocross tracks in various parking lots and car companies come and they have a professional driver sitting with you in the right seat and you um, you know, coach people around courses or whatever, some coaching. I, I did everything I could to stay close to cars, whether the job was junk or whether it was really fun or good. Um, but it wasn't until drifting, one of those jobs, by the way, was coaching ice driving in Colorado. So when drifting did come to the US, I'd been sideways for, for a long time at that point and was ready to jump right in. And so when that sport started growing in the US, I had already had so much practice there were a couple guys there that from came from a rally driving background in a sideways type style. Samuel Hubinet, Reese Millen, um, myself. There were some that didn't stick with it, like Rich Rutherford, Nick Coonwalter. These are guys that did the the original um, D1 events, but um, you know didn't really stick with it. But Samuel Reese and I made a living out of it, and. Um, so drifting come to the U.S. And, and then getting in touch with all those marketing departments. Drifting is great at, you know, getting you in touch with companies, marketing departments rather than their racing uh, sponsorship like marketing departments. One is a giant ocean and one is a little uh, bucket of water. So um, getting involved with 
changing a brand's image or the mean age of their demographic is really expensive. And that's what drifting could do, where putting a sticker on a car and, and trying to win and get exposure on TV, it was a, a smaller ask and you could affect the company in a smaller way. So it, it, it was, and you're fighting over that money with a ton of more people. So getting involved in drifting and the marketing side of these companies was, was an important business move and racing move. And you mentioned with drifting, you won back-to-back championships in 07, 08 with uh, Formula Drift. I didn't really know too much about Formula Drift until I started researching a little bit more. Just how does that kind of work just with, you know, being it, having to be next to your competitor, trying to stay on the line and just trying to, you know, over, you know, just be able to, like, to take advantage and like, you know, get a win or something like that. Drifting is a very like visceral sport um, because first of all, there's a qualifying and then there's the actual event. The qualifying is one car at a time. Essentially, the closer you come to crashing a car you can't afford to fix, the higher your score is, is how it ends up laying out. Really, I mean, there are some objective parts to it, radar guns, things like that at that time that really helped uh, separate um, different runs from people. But qualifying was very difficult and there's a lot of people there and they're loud and it's, it, 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 that's, a, that's a battle with nerves. Um, then the races, yeah, the, you're, you're doing, doing tandem. So there's two cars at a time, one car leads and then the other car leads. And um, the, the first car is going as quick as they can through the course and um, hitting all the marks. The second car just has to match up to that. And then you're just waiting at some point for somebody to make a mistake. You're um, sideways with the back bumper running outside wall of these uh, three-eighths mile or half mile ovals at hundred miles an hour. And you're getting sucked into that car because of the draft. And so there's a lot going on. It's very hard to see through the smoke, very hard to anticipate what that driver is going to do. And um, it's really amazing. Um, it's really amazing thing. I haven't competed in drifting in a long time, but when I would get knocked out, even when I was competing and I would watch the final rounds and watching from the outside, it's just like, this is freaking crazy. Like, this is so insane. These cars are not like slippery. Like they don't just slide easy. They have, now they have over a thousand horsepower. They make so much traction. Um, they are very impressive in forward grip. They can do amazing drag times. Um, and they're very, very fast cars. And, and so it's a lot of commitment to do it by yourself, much less door to door with another car. It, it really is a cool sport. I was going to say, I was wondering just how do you like are so pinpoint on being able to match up with that guy ahead of you? Let's say you're, you know, you're tandem with someone and you're the, like the follow guy. How do you kind of work away and almost have to react to how they're going and being able to keep it exactly with them as much as you can? You know, once you're uh, at that level where people are at, um, at the limit and they're, they're going fast it's very smooth. There's not a lot of like, just like if you're following a car around the corner at a limit on a race, that's not drifting. Um, that car is right against a gentle balance of the edge of the grip limit. So there's not a lot of abrupt changes in speed or direction. So once you're, you're there and you're with somebody at the limit also, you can match up to them. It's smooth. You don't have to worry about them constantly changing speed and stuff. Um, plus you can see the, the physics at work. So you can see what they're doing and where they're going to go. Um, and, uh, but then you also have some tools in your tool bag with drifting. So 
Um, you can clutch in and handbrake momentarily. Even in fourth gear, when the tires are going 150 miles an hour, they have their own calipers for the handbrake. Um, so, and a very, very strong drivetrain so that you can then again, drop the clutch and it goes right back up to 150 miles an hour, um, which is very, very hard on, on, you know, drive shafts and stuff. Uh, but you can use those sorts of things to, ex you know, to take your line higher up on the bank. Um, you can also left foot brake while you're drifting a bit, um, to, to kind of slow things down without necessarily losing the, the drift angle that you want to match up to that other guy. So while the, the it's judged, and, and that's one thing I didn't like about it, um, turns out all motorsport is judged <laughs> because, you know, rules change and, um, and there's a lot of politics, but um, they're judged. So it, it's uh, that, you know, what they're looking for, what the judges are looking for has changed over the years since I've been involved. Um, and, uh, you know, some for the good, some for bad, but it's just not a sport I'm super involved in anymore. So it's, uh, but it still is amazingly high skill level of those guys. What would you say just as you're continuing to learn about the sport, learn how to drive it, just what was the most difficult aspect about it? Um, the most difficult, well, we were, you know, there's constant innovation. And so nobody had really explored with aerodynamic stuff, um, the Japanese were kind of ahead, you know, with D1 on some of the suspension and engine tuning side of it. And then I think um, it wasn't long, it was only four years or so into drifting in the US that Formula D surpassed D1 in its size and, and possibly technical capabilities of the cars. Um, the biggest challenge was matching up to a car that was very different because um, when you're drifting, the car's limit is at a certain point, regardless of the driver. And some cars weighed 500 pounds more or less than yours. So that car could brake much quicker sideways. So when the braking zone would come up, you would need to gap them a little bit so that you didn't just run over them. Um, so that was the hardest part is being committed, but giving yourself just enough safety buffer that you could adapt to some variable that you weren't ready for. And then uh, just moving on, you ended up going into rally cross for, you know, obviously you do that now as well. Uh, just you competed in various series and with that, including X Games. Uh, just what drew you into rally cross initially? Uh, well, the whole time I was doing drifting, I was also rally racing, which in the forest um, in uh, for a Subaru dealership. So those eight years I was doing drifting, I was doing rally the whole time, one of production GT championship, but got a lot of rallies and loved rally racing, but you couldn't make a living at it in the US. In Europe, they had this sport rally cross, which was essentially like rally cars, twice the horsepower on a closed track instead of like racing out in the forest one at a time, six cars at a time. It was chaos. I saw a video of Marcus Grunholm was one of my driving heroes. Um, racing in Sweden, I was talking to my manager and I was like, look, I mean, if we can, if I could do that, I would probably leave uh, drifting right now and, and go to Europe and go do that. And Ford at the time was trying to sell the Fiesta in the US and the Focus and they had to sell millions of them. And they really didn't have a sport that would make cars look cool in the US, small cars. So um, it was a good time to bring Rallycross to the US. There were some like-minded people at Ford. Yost Capito was one of those um, uh, and my manager ended up owning the series in the US. And so I raced in Europe for eight, 10 years. 
um, got the sport going, helped to get the sport kind of going here in the U.S. and then competed in the U.S. with the, under various names from Global Rallycross to um, ARX, now it's Nitro uh, Rallycross. But um, fundamentally, it's just, uh, it's just a, it's the most fun you can have in a car and, and the cars are stupid fast. Um, now, I think the future of Rallycross is really electric which sounds like sacrilege, but it's inevitable that we're gonna be driving more and more electric cars on the road. Volkswagen is particularly made a, a big push and I'm sponsored by Volkswagen. And if, and pretty much if you are sponsored by a manufacturer and wanna have a long-term ride, you, you have to be talking EVs at some point. Rallycross happens to be a sport that we've known for the last eight to 10 years that it's perfect for electric. It's just taken a really long time to get the, the sport started in electric, but they're short heats. It's all about um, acceleration. Uh, you know, the races are only five minutes long or so. Um, the, the, the electric is really one of the only ways we can accelerate any faster. We're already accelerating to 60 miles an hour in under two seconds. And um, and it's a young demographic and the cars look like real cars, um, but they fly through the air and they do amazing stuff. And so, yeah, I think uh, Rallycross in the past has been very cool. And I think in the future it will be very cool. And I just hope it stays alive here in the middle. And you mentioned this with the cars looking like an actual street car. Like I think it's one of the things that I've always really loved watching is the fact that you see a Ford Fiesta, Volkswagen Beetle that you drive, uh, just, you know, you slap a wing on that, all sorts of, bells and whistles and it's like the coolest thing you could possibly do in a car like in general <laughs> i know that's so fun i mean you, the way that pastrana has put this, the nitro trucks together is amazing you know 170 foot jump every lap you can choose to take a gap jump over a tabletop jump that goes under a tunnel i mean there's a three-layer jump there it's like a circus and we're like racing for time over that stuff um yeah the beetle is probably a you know million or two million dollar beetle it's not your average beetle and since Volkswagen doesn't sell Beetles anymore, we really won't be racing that anymore. But the, um, yeah, the future of Rallycross is in electric and, and hopefully the cool factor, like you're talking about, the fun factor of the, the, the driving itself keeps people um, fanning about uh, Rallycross, even when there's not the any lag and fire shooting out. And uh, just looking back at your career in X Games, specifically, you won four gold medals in X Games competition. Uh, is there one that stands out to you that you know means more to you or was more competitive or that kind of thing? I think the, the first, um, you know, I was racing for Vermont Sports Car then, who's been a competitor of mine for a, long, a lot of years since then. The first year I was, I didn't get a medal but it was like a dream team. I suddenly got a, a ride in a Subaru. It was a lesser level than the other three that I was competing against or competing with as my teammates, Pastrana, Ken Block, and Colin McRae. Um, Pastrana and Ken both had a bit more rally experience than I did, um, but not too much. And of course, Colin McRae was Colin McRae. And and then I had a group N car, they had open cars, but I was able to hang with them in most times. And I was really proud of that. And um, partly for that reason, I got, I, Colin and I kind of friend, befriended each other a little bit there. And I took him in my drift car, actually took him out to Irwindale. We, we did some laps around that in my drift car, introduced him to Hulk Hogan. 
strangely enough, and drifted his uh, son's, at, actually Samuel's old Viper. And, um, but I didn't get uh, the wind then. I got a puncture out in the forest. And instead of letting me change it, they wanted to showcase one of the things that is stage rally, which is changing a spare tire in the stage. It ruins you for being able to win an event, but it's something that can happen in rally. So they made me sit with that puncture until the stage started and then change it right over the line so they could cover it on TV. And it was heartbreaking. You know, I had, I, I really was early, early in my career and, and I really wanted to show my stuff, you know? Um, but then uh, following year came back and um, I can't remember if it was that, uh, yeah, I think it was that next year I came back uh, with Chrissy Beavis and we um, uh, did the whole, the whole race in the stadium and jumping out of the stadium, the Home Depot Center. And uh, it was a weird event. It, it connected with ice driving and drifting and all that stuff. And it just fell into my wheelhouse and I, and I got that one. And so that one was the most sweet, long, long answers. I'm sorry, but yeah, that one, that one. So the second one. No, we always love long answers. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, with just with X Games, how would you describe the atmosphere compared to any other event that you've been to, whether it's, you know, if you were a fan or if you were competing in? X Games is, was, especially then, was really unique because it was, okay, the sports that it had in there, Supercross and what, uh, you know, Best Trick, um, the bikes, skate, uh, it, it, so many different things. And then to bring four wheel cars in there was something totally new. You know, these guys would show up with a skateboard, be drinking at the bar every night and then competing every day. And we're coming in with these like, you know, six or seven figure programs. Like it, it was, uh, it wasn't normal X games, but they take any sport that's out there and then they put such a bright light on it. And you get for the first time live ABC coverage at that time, which was awesome. And so the organizers of stage rally were using X games to promote stage rally. Then it shifted over to the promoters of, of rally cross using X games to promote rally cross and, and it worked. And then the, the, I think the validity of X games in that world kind of went away. Nitro um, kicked in as Travis um, took his, uh, you know, nitro company to the next level. And with nitro rally cross NRX, it's, you know, has potential to come back to those X Games days with good television package and insane events. Um, so, but but that was a that was the spike in our year. It's kind of like the Indianapolis 500 to the indie guys. There's the series going on, but really to get paid for all of that, you need to do well at the Indy 500 where everybody's watching. And so that's kind of how uh, X Games was. Is we had sponsorship for the whole year, but what they really were paying for was just that one X Games event. I always remember just, I was so, that would be on livid when they got rid of, you know, Rallycross, everything that you guys got to do, because it's just, I always felt like that was probably one of the more, like the cooler highlights of someone who's always loved watching racing and that kind of thing. It's, you know, but I'm so glad that, you know, NRX, that's going to be, you know, become a thing. And now September, I believe the season opener is, um, you know, but I'm yeah really excited about the NRX then. <laughs> I, I am too. And, you know, I will say one thing I will say is Rockstar. I know I, I'm cheesing out because I ha literally have another hat right there. But uh, Rockstar, I signed on with them because of X Games in 2006. And so I've had a really, I don't know, 16, 17 year relationship with them. 
from them. So uh, that was, that's a, that's something that only X games can do is get kind of a guy out of the privateer ish drifting world and, and, you know, get a sponsor that can last that long, get a relationship that deep um, nitro. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to do it this year because um, we may not be able to run our beetles. Uh, they're a very old spec beetle. I still think that they were built in 2016. I still think they're the best car in the paddock. I still think we could take on a lot of the new cars, but um, it's not a car that's sold anymore. So we don't own them. Volkswagen does. And it's uh, probably, it, it, you know, it would be difficult to get them to, to let us take an old car out. Um, so we may be waiting for the electric, but yeah, I'm really happy Travis has put together nitro, very supportive of his program and whatever happens. So I definitely will be at the events and, um, you know, whether I have a team there or not and, uh, look forward to hopefully doing another program with Andretti with, uh, the electric versions when they come out. You mentioned a little bit earlier with rockstar energy, you've done a lot of really cool, you know, stunts with it, whether, you know, whatever it is, just. Uh, just what's probably been the coolest part of just that partnership that you guys have had over the past couple or 16, 17 years, you said. Well, rock, the coolest part about being with rockstar is that, um, they, they follow athletes. They, they don't necessarily follow, not calling myself an athlete, but they, they, they follow people, not necessarily the sport. So when I got into drifting, you know, they had heard of drifting. It was like, okay, yeah, no, that's cool. They had sponsored Dai, uh, Yoshihara, a guy, a guy that I, know very well and and with rallycross they're like yeah i mean what is it? it's gonna be like lamborghinis or you know maybe a gto or something it's like no it's gonna be a ford fiesta you're like no we're not putting our little rock star you know we go to party we rage we don't go to ford fiestas and they did it and then it's like okay well now we want to be on a beetle and we want to be on a, you know they're like okay this is you know stretch and they come along for the ride on all this stuff, just not knowing the sport, never heard of Rallycross, of course, nobody there, right? And um, when I was going out to Europe to do it, and they, they just supported it. And just because we said it was going to be cool, so it was going to have a good demographic, it was going to grow. And, and thankfully, all of those things were true. But um, having a sponsor that's, that's kind of loyal or, or um, really loyal, over that many years is really rare in motorsport. So it's something that I'm hugely thankful of. Um, Stunts, uh, Hot Wheels was uh, a program that we did that Rockstar was also supportive of, um, but couldn't financially support um, because you know Hot Wheels sells to kids and, and there's a, not a good crossover there. But um, Hot Wheels doing those jumps at the Indy 500, doing that big world record jump and then the world record loop with Greg Tracy um, at X games. Um, those two stunts were some of the coolest stunts I've, I've done. Not, they weren't in movies, obviously, but they were just super fun. And you mentioned that 2011 Indy 500 jump. I've, you know, I've always been baffled. I've been a big indie guy for you know, a lot of years, but what all went into making that possible? Um, there was a lot that went into making the Hot Wheels record jump. Um, it, the, the structure itself was kind of never done before. Obviously, being a world record, you're pushing lots of limits. At the time, I think the record was 300 feet. Um, and it had been done kind of down a hill. So the truck was never really that high off the ground. In this case, we were going to have the truck like 50 feet in the air. So, And they wanted to start on top of a 100-foot door to make it look like the V-drop, which is a, a toy where you would winch your car up to the top of a door and then gravity would make the truck jump. So, um, you know, we jumped it over 50 times. We broke the world record 10 times in practice. Uh, wind was a huge factor on the day. Um, 
we tested on Saturday. We didn't do the, you know, we, so we built the structure out here in California, validated everything, changed all suspension, aerodynamic stuff. Because you're working with a toy, you could do any aerodynamic stuff you wanted because they just, it doesn't have to look like the truck. So they would just make the toy after what you settled on and then packed it all up, moved it to, to Indianapolis, built it up. We weren't, we didn't do the jump until the record. And, but we did some speed tests on Saturday. Then Sunday comes along howling wind, uh, 20 degrees hotter, um, is a carbureted truck with 900 and change horsepower. It was down 190 horsepower because of the temperature change and having the wrong jetting, but they didn't want to rejet it because the car was already up on the door and all this stuff. And they're like, well, if you don't make it, you know, you had to see three digits on the speedo to clear the gap. And the boxes at the leading edge of the jump would not have saved you. So um, there was a bailout. Normally I'd hit a hundred by the bailout. On the day when it was ready, set, go, uh, I only saw 88 at the bailout, but it was accelerating fast enough that I really thought I could get triple digits. You had to be about 60% throttle when you left the ground in order to get the, the nose pitch right. Too much throttle and the nose stayed too high and the air could get underneath and flip it too little throttle and it would endo. So 60% was about right. Because it was going slower than normal, I held the throttle as late as I possibly could and then lifted off and I only lifted to 80%. So it flew high. So then I hit the brakes. When you hit the brakes, just like with a dirt bike, it pitches that, that rotational moment goes into the chassis, pitches it, um, but it also kills the motor. So when you look at it this way, it starts rotating to the side and um, it just made for an exciting jump and uh, so I know I just described everything in that, but it was, uh, it was a really fun day in front of 300,000 people, all the dry, you know, before gentlemen start your engines, all the, all the, you know, Ganassi and everybody came down in their golf carts and they got front row seats to watch this foolish, whoever yellow driver try to kill themselves. And then, you know, the truck landed and it was like, okay, let's do the race. And, you know, then fired up the race and went, that was cool. I was going to say just, how, how much just trial and error is there with a stunt like that? Is, is it kind of like you have to lay off too much or go full bore? Is there any, you would just kind of have to find a line, a limit without hurting yourself. You know, I had a daughter already at that point. I had, there was a lot of things in my life to live for and it wasn't, um, it was one of those things when it was proposed, it was like, yeah, sure. Let's, yeah, we'll just keep talking about it. And, you know, eventually it's probably going to get so expensive. It doesn't happen, but you know, in, in motorsport, if you want to get involved in the thing, you throw 10 balls in the air and maybe one comes down if you're lucky. So I was like, yeah, sure. Just went along with it. You know, we had the dinners It started on the napkin drawings and it turned to engineering drawings. And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh my God, they bought the trucks and now they're building these trucks and we're going to actually go do this. So yeah, at that point you're like, all right, now science takes over. So we started out small, 165 feet first jump, got a feel for throttle position. We had a GPS sensor for speed. We had also a um, regular speedometer that, you know, had magnets on the drive shaft. Comparing those two were kind of interesting. And so you had to come up with what worked best. Um, we had uh, the guy from King Shocks out there who was adjusting on the fly as we were making the jumps, a lot to do with rebound setting in the rear. Um, we had panels that we could change the aerodynamics on the front. And we just uh, kept getting the jump bigger and bigger on the dirt. And then we went out with the paved on a paved surface with a jump that was on like train tracks. So I had a huge landing ramp and then you had the takeoff ramp on train tracks. So you could just keep moving it back further and further. 
And eventually I think the gap was around 230 feet or 260 feet. Uh, and you, uh, the world record, well, I think we broke the record. It was 332 feet is what we ended up jumping. And I think that was the biggest that we did. In practice, we broke 300 several times, but um, on the day went just an extra mile an hour maybe. And that, that made it happen. And you mentioned just with other stunts that you've done, uh, you did the indoor speed challenge in 2013 in the Ford Fiesta. Uh, that was a little bit more sketchy, I'm sure. Uh, just how do you push yourself to go beyond the limit just to be able to break something like that when you're going towards a concrete wall at 80, 90, 100 miles an hour? Um, eh, borderline stupidity, honestly. There's uh, That one was for Top Gear. And I just... The, they found this world record. I literally saw this building yesterday. So it's funny we're talking about it. It's way up in Victorville. It's a million square foot warehouse. And they're like, okay, we measured out the distance. Yeah, I think we could get faster than 90 miles an hour. I forget what the record was at the time, 80 or something. And I thought it would be really funny to have a world land speed record in a Ford Fiesta. So at that time I was racing for Ford. So I uh, got the rally cross car out there. We had an Audi R8 and a Corvette and Ferrari and stuff. Um, but it turned out this warehouse was completely polished concrete, had zero grip. And so they put cornstarch and they had enough to put a hundred feet of cornstarch on the start and a hundred feet on the braking, but only as wide as a car. And a um, hundred feet, when you go 90 miles an hour at a concrete wall, a hundred feet is nothing. And I stalled the engine on the brakes with the Ford. So it's dead. I'm slipping the clutch, trying to get the tires to turn the motor enough to refire it. The steering is super stiff on that thing when the engine's dead and try to line it up and just got it on the cornstarch in time to get the, the braking done. So it was unnecessarily dangerous. If, if we had more cornstarch, it would have been totally fine, but that was an interesting challenge. And that's part of, you know, TV just coming up with this. I don't know if there's a lot of bravery involved. It's more about figuring out a little bit on the numbers to see if you can do it and still have a small safety buffer and then hope that you don't make a mistake. You mentioned this with Top Gear, you hosted that show with Adam Ferrara, Rutledge Wood. Uh, that was probably one of, my, one of my favorite shows of all time, so always will be. Awesome. Um, you know, to me, you guys seem to gel really, really well. Uh, what, how would you describe just the camaraderie that you guys had? Uh, I think it was just like you think. It was, uh, you know, uh, did we have roles on the show? Yes, but part of that was true. Um, Adam genuinely crashed things all the time. And he, he hated being called the wrecker at first, but then he just kept on wrecking stuff. And then it's like, okay, just better own it. He crashed more stuff off camera than he did on camera though. So that was bona fide. Rutledge is just a likable, um, super friendly guy who knows a lot of weird information about cars that is completely useless. Unless you're doing a very specific show on a specific car and it just happens that knowing the serial number on a 72 Volvo front bumper is critical. So that, and then I came from a driving background where they didn't. And so my overconfidence against them, it would, because in racing, you know, there's lots of fun competition between drivers and everybody's super, that's why you get into racing because you're competitive. Does that come off like being a bit of a cocky dick on TV? Yeah, sure it does. So that was my, that was my role was to be a bit cocky and you know potentially lose anyway because you know it's uh it's, it's more fun if the cocky guy lose loses but the um 
but also that was my nature was to be competitive and to talk a little bit of smack because that's that's you know that's the the background I have. We got to go a lot of amazing places, drive a lot of amazing stuff. We still are great friends. Um, they're two incredible people. They really, really are. Adam is one of the smartest guys I know, and Rutledge is one of the friendliest guys I know. Not to say that Adam's not friendly and Rutledge isn't smart, but you know what I'm saying. It's, and they're both incredibly funny, which means I, I am not inherently funny. So it's nice that I can just be my straight self and those guys can, you know, make the jokes and it's all good. So we, we had a great time on that show. It was 150 days a year, tons of filming. Um, and we did it, we did over 750 days of filming um, over the span of that show, but I'm proud of what we made. And, and I've met a lot of people like yourself who said uh, that they were strangely young when they watched it, which yes, makes me feel very old, but um, it was kind of a family show, which is cool. And just what all went into just the challenges and figuring out what you guys were gonna do, how much did the producers say, all right, here's an idea. What, what would you guys like to do with it? Was there like a lot of that or is it you know, kind of free or that kind of thing? I mean, we came up with some of it, but most of it was uh, talented producers with very little, sorry, very little uh, um, uh, check in real laws of physics. So lots of big ideas, but could they really be accomplished? Probably not. And so we'd be sent out doing these things. I mean, ambitious, but rubbish, I think is what the British guys would say. And <laughs> so you do your best to, to check, to get it done, even if it really wasn't possible. And, and, you know, it was a, it was a um, Adam was which much more involved. Rutledge was very involved in the car parts of it. There were times in the show where I was racing a full season in Europe and a full season in the U S. So sometimes I just showed up and they were like, okay, we picked you out the purple one. I'm like, Oh my gosh, thanks. And I knew what we were doing, but I didn't, I was the last one to chime in on which car they wanted. Um, but that was only a phase when I was racing in Europe. The other times I was a lot more involved. And, uh, and I think the producers learned as we went really how to shoot it. You know, when we did the first season and I, I did a pilot for Top Gear US that didn't involve those two uh, before that, that never aired for NBC. And it was very much like the British show. James, um, no, actually Jeremy was on set with us as a producer, Jeremy Clarkson. And then when we did the first season of Top Gear for History Channel, it was very much like that. We had the studio, it was a lot like the British show. And then it sort of got its own legs. And as we learned the audience and us, and then we no, no longer were like, you're the, you're the Richard, you're the Jeremy, you're the James. You know, We no longer were like slotting into what they had created. We were just three dudes doing our thing. And then it got to be super fun, especially after that first season. And uh, yeah, it was a it was a it was a really great time, and I'm really happy that I still meet to this day almost every day somebody who comments on on how much they really enjoyed that show. And just out of all the challenges that you guys were able to do, one part of the question: What do you feel is the most enjoyable to do? And then on the flip side, what do you feel is the most sketchy slash borderline dumb type of thing to do? Um, usually, that's the same thing. The, the, the most fun stuff is the stuff that you know you are getting away with something to do it. Um, I strangely was more probably half host, half stunt, like safety and stunt coordinator because, you know, we would go do these things with cars and, and Adam, the, fir the first show was in this Cadillac and we're on this dirt track. It's like a motocross track with jumps. 
And we're jokingly like, oh yeah, just take that one full throttle. It'll be fine, blah, blah, blah. And he like doesn't have a, 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 a anything to compare, like what is okay and what isn't and, and no internal like risk system. You know, he grew up doing stand up and stuff like that. And so he just launched it full throttle. He's like, he told me to go full throttle. And he aired this thing, bent the Cadillac like a banana. The seat belt, I literally had wrapped around the headrest poles because it wasn't really working. And I was thinking he would, he recognized that, you know, take it easy because the seatbelt doesn't really work. Uh-uh. So um, we got away with a lot. And I loved working with the old cars when we got to kind of hit each other and just mess around. Because, you know, like when you, when you do a little, like a jump in a rental car, have you ever done that? No, not yet. I don't think so. <laughs> okay. Well, when you do a jump in a rental car, you will find that it triggers a laughter that is just about as hard as any laughter you've ever had. There's something about that and crashing into your friends in cars that you're just, that's what you're meant to do. I mean, it's, it's, there's something incredibly fun about that. I remember, I think it was actually yesterday I'd watched the one episode is where you were drifting, you know, they're trying to see, all right, what all can Tanner drift? Can you drift everything? And the one was like a bus, that kind of thing. Uh, that was a little bit sketchy. I'm sure almost flipping that. It almost seemed like. Yeah, that, well, that, you know, we, that was in the first season, I think, or second season when we still did the studio. And um, in the U.S., our shows are very specific time, right? They're like 44 minutes on the dot and then the rest commercials. Um, in Europe, the show could be 56 minutes. It could be 47 minutes. It wouldn't matter in the BBC. They didn't have commercials. But for us, they got to the show and they had seven minutes left. And they're like, well, we can't just have them talk in the studio for seven minutes. We've got to come up with something. And I had proposed to them that we do the show kind of like Saturday Night Live, where we have certain skits that are like reoccurring. And one of the things I wanted to do was a will it drift. And so then they literally, we, we shot the studio at El Toro, um, which is also where we tested the Hot Wheels jumps. And um, they just rented a bunch of stuff, ice cream truck or, you know, like a lunch truck and a bus and, all, and then an ambulance. And then I was like, okay, well, if we're going to do this, I mean, this is military grade concrete runway we're doing this on. So I hosed it all down. I got soap, bought case of soap, put all the soap down. Didn't help at all. Like it was so grippy, like military grade concrete is grippy no matter what. And so I could barely get any of those things to slide around. So yeah, it was dangerous. And it sort of came from my first, the only time I got fired from a job is when I was I got caught doing donuts in the Beaver Creek West lot in the town of Vail buses uh, when I was a bus driver at 18. And so uh, those, I told that story about doing donuts in these buses and they're like, oh, sweet. Okay, let's do that. But that's snow. That's not like military grade concrete and soap, but it was still super fun. How long were you a bus driver for when you were 18? <laughs> well, they wanted me to stay. So I was a ski bum there. You know, I took two years off school. It was 91 or 92, something like that. And they wanted me to stay for Christmas. And I had already told them that I was going home for Christmas. You know, I was a college kid. And uh, so I was going to have to leave anyway. So I was a bus driver from the beginning of the ski season. So like October to December. And it was, I didn't pick up passengers usually. I mean, I picked up some drunk like uh, people after, you know, the bars had closed or were hitchhiking. But I worked from six in the evening to four in the morning and drove the buses through the bus wash out to the Beaver Creek West lot where they got fueled and then parked them in Avon. And um, 
slid around every corner possibly could. Now, remember, these are the buses that have the front tires behind you and you have just this big dish. And so when that thing is spinning, you're like getting pulled around backwards. You know, it was the most bizarre, awesome thing. Three guys in the back having a good time hanging on for life. Um, but yeah, my boss was in the parking lot one night uh, in the Suburban and, and fired us all. It happens. It happens. I know I was a couple of years ago. My boss still doesn't know this, um, but <laughs> I was uh, working at a you know local college where I used to live. And, um, you know, I took a Ford Escape. It was the company car that we used. And we'd have to go and put up trash in like these dumpsters. And it was like this big gravel road, you know, and a lot of dirt on it. And I'm like, all right, I saw this in like a top gear or something like that. I'm like, let me try this. So my oh, friend is in the passenger seat. He's like, like liability issue. Right now. Okay. <laughs> a little bit. But so, you know, um, you know, I just kind of gassed it and then slapped down the e-brake then cranked it you know to the left it happened to kind of stick just a little bit i'm like okay it's actually kind of cool and then did a couple donuts up there where the trash bins were but thankfully i don't work there anymore uh they still don't know about it but a little bit of a fun little random thing honestly that's training that's not even hooliganism you're training at that point you're in a safe environment there's nothing to hit right really i mean could have been a dumpster or two just chilling there yeah. but you had some space mm -hmm. and yeah i mean gravel you get away with a lot but you know, I always promote people trying to, you know, get some car control whenever you can. Even a go-kart track, you can get gain car control experience if you can focus on learning there instead of just crashing into your friends. But it's, uh, yeah, that's awesome. Glad you didn't get fired. I did. <laughs> didn't quite work out as well. But, um, you know, you've done a number of stunts, in, you know, for movies, whether that was the Fast and Furious, Tokyo Drift, or uh, the... the um, Ford versus Ferrari, uh, the Bourne movies, just what all goes into just doing a stunt for a movie and just how did that come in, you know, come about originally? Well, movies are super cool um, in that they immortalize certain styles of fighting. They immortalize uh, stories. Um, so it's all, there's always this chip or honor, I guess, about being in certain movies. Um, that doesn't necessarily make the biggest or most remembered movies the most fun um but uh sometimes the most fun movies are like the low budge movies where they don't want to wreck the car and they want to like they want you know the acting is kind of in the driving so um to answer your question it really varies like if you're doing a big stunt or a big jump for like fast and furious like a new one there's a huge amount that goes into that and the, but at the end of the day it comes down to the driver usually in that case it's a stunt person who also is talented at martial arts, setting themselves on fire, um, skydiving, like stunt people are amazing. And they're one-stop shop, good at so many things. We in the driving side of things are pretty fortunate in that we come in as specialists for driving. And a lot of us come from a racing background or drifting or whatever, which is expensive to go pr practice. So, so it, it kind of, keeps keeps the industry fairly or the, the specialty fairly small but um so uh with those big stunts yeah sometimes you're driving to the crash sometimes in a movie like uh, tokyo drift you mentioned that one um there's a lot of acting in the driving so i was dk in that one or double dk which is in the the gray z he was always a good drifter in the movie so I got to always slide around have a good time Reese Millen who was driving for Sean in that movie or the good guy 
he started out as a bad driver and then had to get better. So Reese really had to be acting with his driving. And it's really hard to safely and consistently do the same sloppy maneuver and crash in the exact same spot as if you were out of control. So it's way harder to do that than just to drive nice and clean, slide through the, the scene. Um, uh, Dukes of Hazard was one got to drive that was that was more like a personal favorite. It was my first movie. I didn't do, I just did the first 15 minutes of the movie or so in the General Lee and then was Billy Prickett and a police officer for the rest. Of, uh, but my first movie to get to drive the General Lee, I mean, that was, that, that was the show that I grew up on. These good old boys ripping, you know, through Hazard County, leaving dirt rooster tails everywhere they went. I mean, that was, that was a super dream. But yeah, the movie's amazing. I mean, at the whole industry, there's a couple hundred people. It's like an army that just moves through an area and, just to get something on screen it seems so excessive but uh it, it's very cool to it, it takes a lot of people to do stuff safely now what does like a typical production day look like for you i'm sure it's a lot different from the actors or is it kind of just depend on what scene they're shooting and that kind of thing yeah in some movies you're a soldier so some movies uh, like ford versus ferrari we had a lot of stunt drivers um, 90% of the driving is just background sweeping through this or hanging next to, you know, uh, Christian's character while you're, you know, doing something. Or I, I actually was on camera for that as um, a guy who finished third, Ronnie Bucknam. But that was like, literally, if you blinked in the movie, you completely missed that scene. So um, most of it is just, hey, come on through here. If you can just, you know, give us a little action here is just being a soldier. And that there, you have very little responsibility, just do it safely. Um, and then when you're doubling a lead character, then it's very different. Then you are working all the time and you're very busy. The days go incredibly fast. The responsibility is heavy because a lot of times there's a guy holding a camera right where you're gonna slide your back tire. Um, while you're shooting that, they'll have you walk over to the next intersection and say, hey, in this one, we want you to come through here. And you don't know all this stuff in advance, really. And I'll say, in this one, you do this reverse 270, and we need you to end up here and then take off out of there. Um, we'll, have, we'll break it into three different shots or whatever. And, and so you really have to try to the, identify where the cameras are, what angles they're going to see, what's going to look cool and what isn't going to look cool, and, only, and just save the exciting stuff for those angles. Um, to keep it safe. You don't want to go drifting through a bunch of people that are just there holding lights when you're not even on camera yet. Obviously you're not on camera if, if, if there's guys holding lights there. So um, a lot of it is, a, is translating what they want to see and feel on the screen into physical reality in a safe way that gives them the vibe that they want, which is usually, you know, an over the top vibe. And I love that challenge. So um, uh, the more involved I can be in the better. What would you say is your, was your like favorite scene that you ever got to do in a movie? Or is there a couple of the ones that kind of are up there? Um, there was a movie, there was a remake of a Patrick Swayze movie called Red Dawn. This one happened to be Chris Hemsworth, who hadn't done Thor yet, but he was bulking up for it. So it was, first of all, I, I thought it was funny, the make hair and makeup guy almost quit um because he saw me doubling him you know chris hemsworth who was like 250 pounds and six foot whatever and so i'm sitting on fernie pads the whole time and uh chris was amazing through the whole thing and he was involved in a lot of the stunts it was a very small production but uh, i show up the very first day 
And stunt court is like, okay, here's the deal. We got these, this truck, it's got reinforced radiator, mud tires, lock differential, 300 horsepower. We're going to, you're coming through here. All of a sudden, all these paratroopers start jumping out. So you got to slide around this corner. They start jumping out in front of you. You go through this, you bash through this fence, slide into this tree. We got it all scored out, you know, so the tree will fall over, go through that fence, hit that playground set, go through across the street. And I'm just like, really? And they're like, oh yeah, we rented, it was in Detroit. It, it sadly went Detroit economically, it was really bad. They rented the whole block. We just bashed neighborhood after neighborhood through their backyards. And it was so unbelievably fun. Just you know, fences blasting over the top of this thing and just sliding and crashing into stuff the whole time is, it was like uh, therapy. I don't know. I, I did two weeks of that and was like completely at peace with the world. And um, it, it was just a really fun time. So that was, that was probably my favorite two weeks. The, I mean, Tokyo Drift was amazing also, but um, yeah, Red Dawn was just a lot of fun. I was going to say, you can't go wrong with being able just to bash a car into fences that, you know, or whatever else you may, you know, whatever else it may be and just, just have a boatload of fun and get paid to do it too. <laughs> Everybody was just having a good time, you know, and the, and, and, and the, the, the guy directing it was a previous stunt guy. So he really liked the stunts and the explosions were big and the fires were over the top and everybody, um, you know, we were just enjoying it, but, uh, there is something fun playing in dirt. Normally you're always on the pavement, but when you're bashing through yards and, and city parks and stuff like that, there's something super fun about that. I had, you know, stunt guys in the back while jumping the truck and they're just holding on to straps. And I see their legs in the rearview mirror up in the air and landing, come talking to them like, Oh my God, that was awesome. Like everybody just was really having a good time. So that was a fun two weeks. And uh, just looking at your career overall, you know, whether, whatever it may be, just, uh, how do you stay focused and block out all of just the danger factor that may go into whatever it may be? Um, the danger factor, honestly, I think I'm a scientist, you know, and the, uh, that's what I, that's what I got into all, you know, studies was always about science and I am pretty convinced whether it's true or not. I believe the science that I can find that says this anyway, I'm safer doing the stuff that I do than driving down the 405 in LA. Um, you know, having a five point harness and, and safety gear and ambulances around. I mean, racing is remarkably safety. Yeah, on a set, sure, you can get pushed to do stuff where your safety gear really isn't up to spec and you can get pushed to do some dangerous stuff on a, in a movie, but then it's, your, it's on your responsibility to throttle back and just say, look, this really isn't safe. We should probably try to break this into two shots. It's going to get broken up in editing anyway, you know? So it sometimes experience comes in to make it safer. Um, so uh, yeah, there's a lot of calculated risk, I would say, to answer your question, but um, in, in a huge amount of trust for your team uh, that's involved because yeah, I, I, it's not like early days of drifting was I was over there checking the torque on every wheel because I put the wheel on. Now it's, you just get good people around you and, and everything is going to be predictable. And then it's just on you not to, um, you know, just wad it all up. And uh, I like that responsibility. And the final two questions, uh, how would you say you've been able to use your degree to, you know, just in, to be able to use it in your career now? My degree is strangely applicable to what I do as a racing driver, stunt driver. Um, some of my favorite classes in school um, were physiology classes and behavioral and um, uh, 
classes, but physiology specifically, the way, because what I deal with is, is the human condition. Um, anything that you do, you know, we're not, we're not uh, hardwired for driving at 60 miles an hour. You know, we're, we're evolved to run at the fastest. Anything over 20, 30 miles an hour, the way that our eyes lock on things, the way that our systems work, work against us for driving. And so having a recognition of that and understanding sort of the um, nuts and bolts of the human condition and our limitations really helps me avoid adrenaline, helps me avoid um, any kind of sensory overload situation where the instincts boil to the surface. Because as soon as any racer feels adrenaline, they are crashed. There's no instinct in driving that is good. Uh, steering into the skid is one, but it's, it's still holds too long and you end up spinning the other direction. So it's um, all of those instincts have to be replaced with technique. And I understand that maybe more from, from all those classes. I feel like I kind of have now a new found appreciation for science overall. Cause I know when I, you know, took my last science class this past semester. I mean, I, I don't know. I, can't, I don't understand it. It's a little bit too much for my headspace, but it's just cool to hear like how you've been able to apply it and, you know, in the racing and whatever it may be, and just be able to use it for like to focus and kind of get an advantage in a way. A hundred percent. It's an advantage. Um, or it was in the beginning. I think people, all, everybody's a scientist at, at the limit, but the thing that I'm amazed about is how, um, you know, everything, physical, you're just, or anything discipline related or any, or business even, I mean, you're dealing with the human condition and all of us are, are either snowboarding our way through life. I mean, that's nothing against snowboarders, but you know, we're either taking, being very passive or, or we're taking a proactive approach at um, helping our performance. Um, you know, I've had a couple of mantras in my career. Some of them have been, you know, keep driving fun, and, you know, that's why I got into Top Gear and, and uh, Rallycross because they're, they're the fun with cars. I, I, I was really alarmed when my daughter and her friends are getting a little bit older. And I was thinking that they were not wanting a driver's license. My daughter wants a driver's license, but her, a lot of her friends are like, they'd rather get a new phone or whatever. So um, now my mantra sort of shifted to mobility. And I really... Uh, think that it's part of our responsibility as, as humans is to get out and do stuff, you know, because it is very easy for our brains, which are spectacular, to get satisfaction out of just looking at some glass and, and existing in a cyber world or existing, um, you know, the fact that it's called social media is such a um, oxymoron, but um, so not to make myself sound really old, but I just want to try to promote getting out and going places and doing things. The pilot's license has really changed my thinking of that because um, uh, it's so easy in this country and we could be the last generation to be able to get a license and go places for free, essentially. Um, and uh, it's so easy to be mobile and go places. So it's, uh, yeah, that's that's something that I'm hoping to push in future projects. And you've definitely, uh, you're probably, the most or the, probably the smartest person I've been able to interview on this show so far. And that's not uh, saying anything. Uh, John Force on your list. Come on now. He's, uh, he's going to give you a call. <laughs> yeah, John, he's, he's got, he's pretty interesting to say the least. He's awesome. He's yeah. Awesome. He's a great in guy. The Ford days, he was a Ford guy and I knew he had, he's spectacular. 
That is true. <laughs> uh, final question. Uh, looking back on your career, what's been the most rewarding part of it? Uh, most rewarding part for me is that from what I hear from people and what I try to embrace is, is inspiring people that want to figure out how to make a living in the industry that they're passionate about and maybe otherwise wouldn't have thought possible, um, maybe inspiring them to take a step to do that. There's, um, you know, I, I uh, was on the path to being a doctor and I, and I would have loved being a doctor and, and all my family, a lot of people in my family are doctors and, and I think it's an amazing profession. Um, I never would have thought that I could make a living um, driving cars but sometimes you just got to get the dirty job close to the ideal job and learn how to get the ideal job. And I love that uh, through social media, through whatever, there, I can be reached by anybody. And, and I mean, it's a blessing and a curse, but um, I think a, a lot, a large percentage of people that reach out to me are looking for advice on how to get um, involved in an industry that they're excited about and feel like and maybe they even hear from their parents, but feel like there's no real way for them to make a living doing it. And sometimes they just need a little inspiration to try. And especially if they're young, there's, there's no harm in just going out there and get a, getting even a not fun sounding job in the industry that, that they want to be in. Now that's all the questions I have for you, Tanner. I appreciate you taking the time and just uh, wanting to come on the show. And uh, I wish you nothing but the best, uh, you know, with whatever you end up uh, doing here in the next couple of months. And, you know, <laughs> thank you again, man. Thanks, bud. Appreciate it, David. All right. You have a good day, man. All right. You too. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Behind the Catch Fence with special guest Tanner Faust. Growing up, watching Top Gear every week with my dad was always one of my fondest memories that I had as a child, and it was just really enjoyable hearing some of Tanner's highlights from the show. Faust has a resume in motorsports that is extremely hard to match, and to hear stories from his prolific career was just so much fun. I'd also like to give a quick shout out to Nitro Rallycross as their season will officially get the green flag in Salt Lake City on September 24th through the 25th. Faust alongside Travis Pastrana, Patrick Sandell, Scott Speed, Ken Block, and others will be competing in the series. If you're a fan of any form of motorsports, you should mark your calendars because it's bound to be electric. Anything that Nitro Circus touches, it's going to be electric, so make sure to go and watch that. I'd like to thank Tanner once again for coming on to the podcast. We are just about out of time for today's episode, so look out for more interviews and content over the next couple weeks. Before I go, make sure to follow this podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Behind Catch. Thank you for listening. I'll catch you guys later.